The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture passage this morning is Luke 18, 1 through 8. If you're using the, the black Bible in front of you, you will find it on page 824. Please stand with me. Again, that's Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our sermon title this morning is going to be called Faithful Waiting. And our main idea comes down to this, don't lose heart. We're pulling that right out of verse 1 there in Luke 18. Don't lose heart. In the waiting, remain faithful in prayer. And so what you're going to hear me say uh, several times this morning, actually, is that the past two weeks where we saw Jesus heal the lepers, we talked about this idea of not forgetting that Jesus is in the business of saving sinners in that sinners are saved by faith alone. And then Luke took us to this idea where Jesus answers the question about when will the kingdom of God come. And we use this language of don't lose sight of the certain return of Jesus. What you're going to see here is that Luke is ordering these, this parable, this introduction of the answer to the question of the coming of the kingdom of King Jesus and this salvation idea that we talked about with the lepers, they're actually not just three random things thrown together, but they're all building up to this idea that we're going to see today as it relates to this idea of not losing heart in the waiting, in the everyday, in this expectant, in-between that we've been talking about, that as we find ourselves as everyday disciples, what does it look like for us to remain faithful in prayer, and that is the parable that Jesus is putting before us this morning. And so like we normally do, we're going to hit pause and we're going to pray. We're going to ask Jesus just to help the proclamation um, of his word through me. Uh, but in the spirit of the audible that are being pulled here, this just hit my mind earlier that maybe it would be good uh, for us uh, maybe to sing our prayer this morning. Um, And you're welcome to join in with me to have an attitude of prayer or an attitude, a heart of prayer 
that just takes this song to Jesus in dependency. If you want to sing out loud, you're more than welcome to. If you're like, I ain't ever going to sing out loud when there ain't no music playing because somebody will hear me singing and I don't want to offend someone's ears, then I understand. But uh, feel free to join me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus, we need you to speak this morning. And we need you to do so. We echo the words of Samuel from the Old Testament. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Some of us just need to hear and know and be reminded this morning that Jesus loves me. That in Christ, the salvation I found in him means Jesus loves me. And that we do have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow because Jesus loves me. And I can live with the strength I need to remain faithful in prayer and to press on in the, in the today, in the in-between the arrivals of Jesus because Jesus loves me and that is good news for me today. Jesus, would you use these words from Luke 18 today to minister to your people it's in your name, King Jesus, we ask. Amen. Well, as you just heard me say, what we've discovered over the past two weeks are these two truths. Looking at the lepers that Jesus healed, we learned that we are called to never forget that Jesus saves sinners and that sinners are saved by faith alone. We're Moving into that last bit of that gospel sandwich we've been talking about in Luke. And Luke says, before we go any further, we've said a lot of words. Don't ever forget this, that Jesus is the Savior who saves sinners and sinners are saved by faith alone. Then we moved right into that question where the Pharisees in verse 20 asked Jesus the question, when will the kingdom of God come? When, when is this going to come? You're the king. We, we see something kingly about you. When, when are you going to come? When is your kingdom going to rule and reign here on earth? And we talked about how living in the muck and the mire of life, living in a Genesis 3 kind of world, we can lose sight of the already not yetness of the kingdom. That because King Jesus came with his first arrival, his kingdom has come in a sense, but there is coming an unmistakable certain day when he will come back. And the certain return of Jesus, it is immutable. That means it is unchangeable. It will happen. There's no way it cannot not happen. But we can lose sight of this. 
So we have this don't ever forget reality and this don't lose sight reality, but here's the hard truth for us saints. We often do forget though, don't we? (laughs) And we often do lose sight. And unfortunately, this is true because you and I are prone to lose heart in the day-to-day living in any number of reasons as we live out our days in between the two arrivals of King Jesus, maybe just similar to like what we are praying. Stuff happens. Life happens. Genesis 3, muck and mire kind of things happen. And it's easy to begin to lose heart as we live out our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, week after week, month after month year after year. And when the Savior's people lose heart, unfortunately, one of the first areas of our Christian life that can begin to suffer is prayer. When the hope of Christ's certain return fades from view, when our hearts and our minds begin to lose sight of the certain, unchangeable Jesus is coming back, one of the areas of our life that just begins to shrink into the background is this idea of being faithful in prayer. It can be all too easy to begin to leap to this way of thinking in the losing of heart. Why should I even spend time in prayer? To begin to think, I'm not sure I know the point of continuing to remain faithful in prayer. After all, nothing seems to change when I pray. Life keeps rolling along as normal with mind-numbing monotony. All things seem to continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And this call to remain faithful in prayer just begins to move to the back burner. And then it begins to move off the burner and moves out of the kitchen and ain't even in the house anymore. Has anyone ever been here before? Yes, well, here's the good news. Jesus understands where you're at right now. And my proof is Luke 18, verse 1, where Jesus lays the key at the door of this parable and says, you don't have to go searching for what I'm trying to tell you because I'm going to tell you a parable right now to the effect that you, my disciples, ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why in the world would Jesus say, I want you to be people who always pray and not lose heart? It's because Jesus knows we are prone to not always pray and lose heart. It's like when you go to your friend's house and you see the sign next to the pool that says, don't pee in the pool. Why is the sign there? Because somebody has peed in the pool, okay? You don't have to guess why the sign is there. And you don't have to guess why verse 1 is here. It's because Jesus knows us, saints. And the shepherd of your soul knows that in the losing of heart that can happen in the midst of everyday life, it can be easy to begin to think, I don't know if I should ought to remain faithful in prayer. So the question then is this, in light of verse 1 and the way that Jesus is delivering this parable to his weary saints, in this muck and the mire of daily living, the question then becomes, well, if this is what Jesus is calling me to do, to remain faithful and not lose heart, well, how do I do that? 
Because it's easy to say, Tom, do this. And then it's a little bit harder to go, yeah, but how? What does that mean? What does that look like? How can I remain faithful? Instead of losing heart in the waiting as an expectant in-between everyday disciple, how do I diligently wait for the day of Christ's return? And the answer is this, that I wait with unceasing, stout-hearted prayer. Unceasing, always praying, verse 1, not losing heart. That means we have a stout heart, a strong heart, a heart that clings to the promises of what Jesus says. Now, I want you to not miss this. Jesus is shepherding you and me right now in the saying of these things. And I say this because the content of this parable cannot escape the context of Jesus' certain return. When you roll from the end of chapter 17 into the beginning of chapter 18, this isn't Luke being like, well, you've got to talk about prayer at some point in time, I guess. And he just slaps a parable about prayer randomly into his gospel. That's not what he's doing right now with certainty so that we might have certainty. Luke says, I want you to see what Jesus was teaching his disciples. Jesus is shepherding his people right now. As we saw last week, if you remember, Jesus implied that as his disciples wait in the in-between, as we find ourselves in between the first arrival of Jesus, that first Christmas morning, and as that second arrival of Jesus, which is still future from you and me here today, we find ourselves in this in-between. Jesus said last week to his disciples, what you need to know is that life will not be easy. Life is going to be hard. He implied that as his disciples, as you, as I, wait in the in-between, we will know desperation. We will know groanings. We will know sufferings. We will know the pressure and we will know the assaults and we will know the opposition of the world around us. Jesus knows that in the long, weary interval between his two arrivals, verse 22 from last week, we will desire just to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Jesus, can we just see you ruling and reigning here right now in the midst of our suffering? Will you please come, how long, Lord Jesus, until we see all things Wrong made right. How long, O Lord? You will long and desire to see just one of the days of the Son of Man. But Jesus says, you ain't going to see it though. In other words, what I think Jesus means here is in the longing, in the in-between of the two arrivals, what we will see in these days is a world where, verse 8, God's elect experience wrong suffering. They experience indifference from the world around them. And affliction will come their way just simply because they say, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Lord. They will experience a world of injustice that will drive us to ask God in prayer to put things right for His people as they suffer wrong in this world. So if you look around at the state of things in our world today, if your waiting in the in-between prayers sounds something like this, Father, your kingdom come. 
Quickly, Lord, hasten the day when you come back, King Jesus. But in the midst of these in-between-the-waiting, in-between-the-arrivals kind of prayer, if you are tempted to doubt whether God hears your prayer, if you're tempted to doubt whether any real change is taking place when you pray, if you're tempted to doubt whether prayer like this does any kind of good or is just a waste of time, if you have grown weary in prayer, if you've grown discouraged in prayer, if you've grown too busy for prayer or distracted in prayer, if at certain times prayer seems dry and unproductive, if there are times when you have no emotional energy, no warmth of feeling for prayer, if there's this creeping conviction of pointlessness that slithered into your mind and you find your motivation for prayer has sprung a slow leak. Thus, for instance, you're teetering on the edge of believing that pleading with God in prayer to put things right for his people as they wrongly suffer accomplishes nothing. Then Jesus says, you need to sit up and you need to pay attention because I got a parable for you. You understand what Jesus is saying right now? He's shepherding you. Jesus isn't aloof. He's so kind. He's so merciful. He knows where you're at. He's not asking you to get your act together and then come and schedule an appointment with him. He is saying, you can come to me. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you groaning under the weight of sin in this world? And if you're like, yes, 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 Jesus says, I've got a parable for you. So I want you to pay attention now because Jesus is inviting you into something deeper with him in the invitation that we first see in verses 2 through 5 is this, saints, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Pray because we live in a world of wrong suffering. Pray because we live in a world of wrong suffering. Notice that everything that I've just said, all of this is the backdrop to the parable of the persistent widow that lies before us. If you notice in the text, the widow's circumstances are a microcosm. The widow's circumstances are meant to be a mini sample of what Jesus' people face in the world today. Look at verse 2, at how Jesus begins the story. Jesus said this, what you need to know is that in a certain city there was a judge. And this judge was a man who neither feared God nor respected man. That's the descriptor of this judge who is ruling and reigning and living in the world of this persistent widow. A certain judge in a certain city neither feared God nor respected man. This is the world that the widow finds herself in. The judge is godless. The judge is irreligious. The judge, he is unaccountable, and he is uncompassionate. He's just a loose cannon. He's doing whatever he wants to do, and his, his moral compass is this. I will live according to me, and his worldview is I don't bow myself to God, and I ain't going to bow down and give any, any respect to man. And so this is the world that the widow finds herself in, and to put it lightly, this is producing some hard things in her life. The widow's life is distressing, and her suffering is made worse by this judge. 
If she were to say to you, my friend, listen, my, my situation here is hopeless. You'll see here down in verse 3 where she says, give me justice against my adversary. I have an adversary. Someone is hounding me. Someone is making my life hard. Things are not going the way I want them to. Stuff is happening in my life that is robbing from me. It's not life giving to me. And many more things could be said. If she were to come to you and say, the one who can give me justice, he is godless, he is irreligious, he is unaccountable, and he is uncompassionate, and she were begin to say to you something like, my situation is thus hopeless. My request seems futile. I will never get justice. To go to a judge like this seems like a waste of time. Many of us would say to her, I don't blame you. I think you're on the right track. Yet, to encourage us, Jesus actually reveals quite the polar opposite picture of the persistent widow. She is a different picture. Instead of hopeless futility, notice that Jesus describes the widow as someone who is unceasing and stout-hearted in perseverance. This is a woman, notice, who kept coming to the judge and saying, give me justice against my adversary. She is what it looks like to always pray and not lose heart. So when Jesus says, I'm about to tell you a parable on what it looks like for you to always pray and not lose heart, he's now holding up the persistent widow as the perfect picture of what verse 1 looks like in the story. Her unceasing prayer in verse 3 is this, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. Her stoutness of heart is shown in that she kept coming, she kept coming. She's going down the street, she sees the judge, she's tapping him on the shoulder, give me justice. She's in the marketplace, she looks over, there he is buying a bag of apples, she comes to him, I need you to give me justice. It's at home, maybe she's peeking through his window, give me justice. She's, everywhere she goes, she is not ceasing, stout-hearted, not losing heart. She can't stop praying, and she won't stop praying because she is being wronged, and she wants things to be put right. Give me justice, she says. Now, the application is that you and I are the widow in this parable. In verse 8, if you glance your eyes down real quick, what you'll notice is that Jesus refers to God's people as his elect. And as God's elect who live in the world today, what Jesus is teaching us is that it is right for us to cry to God the Father day and night this prayer, God give justice. God give justice. In other words, it's the prayer that says this, God, what we need in this moment is for you to come and give vindication. What we need in this moment is for you to come and avenge your people. It is right for God's elect to cry to him day and night the prayer, God give justice, because really it's a prayer born out of places like Romans 12, 19, where Paul the Apostle, writing to the Christians in Rome, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. 
I will repay, says the Lord. So the kind of prayer that Jesus is modeling for us, and I think probably the kind of prayer and the words that Paul has in mind, where after 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he's laying out gospel doctrine left and right, left and right, one of the most robust unpackings of the good news of King Jesus, the Savior who saves sinners. He rolls into chapter 12 in the book of Romans and says, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What does it look like to apply these past 11 chapters of gospel doctrine? And eventually he comes to the point where he says this, it looks like operating in the world where we don't go and take God's responsibility off of his shoulders and come and try to put it on our shoulders where we go seek vengeance, where we go and avenge, where we go out and take matters in our own hands, but we persistently instead anchor and bank on the promise of the truth of Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This kind of prayer uh, uh, honestly flows in line with the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. It's saying, I'm going to let God be God in this moment. And I ain't going to try to be God in this moment. Many of us, when we try to be God in any given moment, it goes really south really fast. Amen? I'm going to go get adjusted. I'm going to go seek vengeance. I'm going to go and avenge in this moment. And it goes south quick, fast, and in a hurry. But Paul says the right application of these truths is to remember that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Thus, Jesus says, cry to him. Day and night, God give justice. You see, unceasing Stout-hearted prayer believes that God acts for his people and believes that God puts things right for his people. That's what unceasing, stout-hearted prayer does. It, it has this as the anchor. It has this as the skeleton. It has this as the backbone. It has this as the foundation. I will continue always praying as I ought, and I will not lose heart. I will be known as a stout-hearted man or woman who prays because I believe these two truths to be true about my God, that God acts for his people and that God puts things right for his people. It's not that God acts for his people and sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't and sometimes he gets the job done and sometimes he doesn't. It's no, he acts for his people and he has the ability to put things right for his people. In all honesty, what Jesus is teaching here about praying always and not losing heart in line with Romans 12 verse 19 is it is a prayer to the God of Psalm 94. Psalm 94, O Lord God of vengeance. That's the way the psalmist begins his prayer in Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. Notice, repay to the proud what they deserve. This is prayer being born out of the fact that a right attribute, a right characteristic of my living God is that He will make wrongs right. He will avenge. He will vindicate His people. And it's not going to be in some veiny, ne veiny necked, red face, like arbitrary, like just throwing down fire. 
fire bolts from heaven. That's not what's going on. It's in the standard that's in line with the holiness of God. A God who's loving and a God who is just. I think it's Genesis 18. Shall not the just judge of all the world do what is right? Our God is judge. He is just. He will do what is right. And so it leads the psalmist to pray, God, you are a God who's holy. You're a God who's loving. You're a God who's true. You're a God who's merciful. You're a God who's gracious. You're also a God who seeks vengeance. You will repay to the proud what they deserve. And the prayer keeps going. It's a prayer that asks, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? See, even the psalmist here knows that while I live in the mindset, the right thinking that says, God is the one who avenges, he will seek vengeance, I can allow God to be God, and I'm going to dare to allow God to be God, I will not presume to be God in this moment. It still doesn't mean you're not going to find yourself in situations where you're going, How long? How long am I going to have to groan? How long until you come back, Jesus? How long until this wrong is made right? The psalmist understands it. Oh, Lord God, how long shall the wicked exult? So it's prayer that asks the question while simultaneously clinging to this great promise in Psalm 94. The Lord will not forsake his people. The Lord will not abandon his heritage. Notice the language for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Amen. So the Bible is feeding us right now to turn our eyes to our God, to see these things to be true, but to also with eyes wide open to look around in the situations that we find ourselves to say, I'm going to cling to these two truths. My God is the God of vengeance. I also live in a world where the muck and the mire of the Genesis 3 realities are all around me. So I'm going to ask how long, but as I ask how long, I'm going to keep asking how long, and I'm going to always pray as I ought, and I'm not going to lose heart. Why? Because I know that even if I never see something this side of heaven, if I close my eyes in death before the answer to this prayer comes, where I see it with my eyes, what I do know is this. There is coming a day when every single wrong will be made right. And so I have strength for today and I do have bright hope for tomorrow because my God will make it right. And so I'm going to not lose heart. I'm not going to lose heart. This is how we preach to ourselves, saints, in the muck, in the mire, in the how longs. Do you understand? What Jesus is doing is feeding us what we need so we know how to preach the truths of the Word of God to us in the mundane monotony where the monotonous realities tend to be like a hammer blunting the sharp scalpel edge of the truths of God where just the same thing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is like a hammer blow, like a hammer blow. And what it can do is it can dull the sharp edge of God's promises. This is Jesus honing the sharp edges, so that you can cling to these promises. Now notice in verses 4 and 5 how we see these truths from Romans 12 and Psalm 94 played out in the most unlikely source. 
the one person where you're like in the parable, I'm pretty sure this dirt bag will never be able to teach us anything true about God. And Jesus is like, au contraire. I want you to notice the unrighteous judge. And you're like, what can he possibly teach us about prayer, not losing heart, seeking God? Jesus says, check out the unrighteous judge. For a while he refused, verse 4, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. I'm going to give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. What's so funny is that in the original language, this idea of beat me down is actually a word that means to punch below the eye, which means this. You've given someone a black eye. And so the judge is sitting here going like, ah, like she's not like actually punching him in the face, but he's like, it's as though I'm being given a black eye every time this gal shows up because she's like, justice, justice, give it to me. I want it. I need it now. Don't you go away. No, you come back. Give me what I need. I have an adversary. Give the justice. Give the justice. Bring it. Deliver what you can do. And so what God is saying is that even in the most unlikeliest sources here, Jesus is showing us that we can learn some truths about God. So in a sense, this unrighteous judge actually becomes the source material that sets us up for Jesus' second invitation in verses 6 through 8, and it's this, don't lose heart, pray because God will give justice to his people. That's what he's showing us. Don't lose heart. Pray because God will give justice to his people. So what Jesus does in verses 6, 7, and 8 is he uses a lesser to greater illustration. He says, hey, if you look here at the unrighteous judge, what you should be able to do, and what we're going to see is that there's some parallels and there's some contrast in the unrighteous judge where we should be able to look at him and go, ah, if this, if this is true, how much more is it true of the God that we, that we love and that we serve? So in verse 6, notice what Jesus says. He says, listen, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Hear what he says. The question is, what did he say? The answer is, I will give her justice. This is what the unrighteous judge says. So the point that Jesus is making in verse 6 is found in a parallel and a contrast. The parallel is this. Listen, if a scumbag judge like the one that's in this parable right here, will give justice to this, to this widow, how much more will God give justice to his elect? So there's some kind of parallel going on here. If you, if you see that he gives justice, and then what you should do is go, okay, but my God is no unrighteous judge. He is the just judge of all the earth. Then how much more will it be true that my righteous God will give justice to his elect, but then comes this contrast. If an unrighteous judge will eventually pay attention to the cries of this widow, then how much more will our righteous God joyfully? Because it was very begrudging on the part of the unrighteous judge, wasn't it? Ah, it's like she keeps punching me in the face, man. Like, fine, t- have what you want. But don't go thinking that that's the way God is, that like God the Father is up there like man, you know. Every time old Dan Hartman prays, I mean, that dude just was like a bulldog grip. He won't stop, and it's like it just keeps punching. Fine, fine, here's your answer. That's the contrast. The unrighteous judge, that's how 
he responded, but our God is the righteous judge. It's not a begrudging thing on the part of our righteous God, our righteous judge. It is a joyful, happy, glad, please come to me and bother me in this way, says our God. He joyfully pays attention to us and answers the prayers of his people. Notice verse 7. That's where this truth comes from. Will not God give justice to his elect? Those who cry to him day and night. So there's the unceasing, always praying idea. Will he, God, delay long over them? No, 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 no. I tell you this. He will give justice. And he will give justice to them speedily, he says. Now, we need to pause and we need to ask a question about promises as it relates to answered prayer. And we need to think lest we take something out of context right now, okay? It is really important to say something right now about the promise of answered prayer right here. When Jesus says what he says in verses 7 and 8, what you need to know is that this is a very specific promise attached to a very particular kind of prayer, okay? This isn't Jesus saying, if you just launch anything in the heavens, I'm going to give you what you want and I'm going to do it quickly, okay? That's not what he's saying right now. This is prayer for God to give justice to his suffering, stomped on, ignored, and despised people in the world. So for suffering saints whose suffering is the direct result of unrighteous, judge-like actions in the world, the promise right here in verses 7 and 8, according to Jesus, is that while this may be the case in the in-between waiting for his second arrival, there is coming a day when God will give justice for his people for all the wrongdoing that they, or all the wrong suffering that they have been on the receiving end of, and the promise is he will bring this justice speedily. It's not speedily, though, in the sense that the Father is just waiting for your lips to stop moving so he can drop a quick answer to your prayer. Oh, Lord, will you give justice? And the father's up there like, hey, Lord, will you give Yes, right? Just waiting for you to be, yes, here's, here's your answer to your prayer. It's not speedily in that sense because some of us, right, this is the word, it's important to pay attention to the promise because some of us are like, man, I've prayed for justice. I've prayed for the saints in Pakistan who are being murdered because they follow Jesus. I prayed for those Christians over in the Middle East who are on the receiving end of, of persecution, I've prayed for those saints in China, for those saints in India. I've prayed for my coworker who was on the receiving end of some unjust action at work because the boss above them does not like Christians. They still lost their job. They still got passed over for the promotion. They didn't see anything speedily come. And so the question is, in what sense does Jesus mean speedily? 
And it's important to see that it's not speedily in the sense that the Father is just waiting for you to stop your lips moving so he can just drop an answer to prayer, but it's speedily in this sense. It's in the sense that when the day comes for justice to be executed, the justice that we're longing for, it's not going to be long, and it's not going to be drawn out. Like in the days of Noah, in the days of Lot that we saw last week. Do you remember what was going on there? They were marrying and they were burying. They were planting, they were harvesting. They were going to work and then they weren't. And then one day God said, Noah, get in. Boom, justice came. One day the people of Sodom were hanging out. There was a day set on the divine calendar that no one knew about salvation came guys we need to flee the city we need to flee the city we need to flee the city whatever 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 and then boom fire and brimstone fell it came speedily justice came it was swift it was sudden and notice that it was entirely just and righteous vengeance in the days of noah and lot and it will come against the proud who refuse to bend the knee to King Jesus. So the encouragement here is this. In the in-between waiting, we find ourselves in the in-between. We find ourselves living in the muck and the mire of a Genesis 3 world. Where we groan and we suffer and we see injustice being leveraged against Jesus' people in our church, in our country, in the world. As we find ourselves in the in-between waiting, don't get sucked into the second Peter chapter 3 error that believes just because there is delay to Christ's return, that this means God's promises are just a load of bunk. That's what second Peter chapter 3 is all about. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 is writing to Christians and he says, I'm going to stir you guys up by reminding you of something you already know. And then starting in chapter 3 verse 8, he begins to say this. Saints, I don't want you to overlook this one fact, beloved. And I love that he calls him beloved. You're so loved. Don't get sucked into the error of the age that says everything's just continuing on as it's been from the beginning. Yeah, I know Jesus said, I'll be back, but he ain't back. Everything's just continuing on as it is. The promises of God are a load of bunk. They are not going to come true. Peter says in his day back then, that was the mindset of the age. Is it any different for us today? No. So he says, what you guys need to do is this. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God's timetable ain't your timetable. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but actually he's being extremely patient toward you right now. Why? He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
right? If the, the world around us says, well, if God were to come, how come he just doesn't show up and get rid of all the evil, get rid of all the battle? Bro, that means he would take you out because you were evil in the sight of God as an unrepentant sinner. So you actually don't want God to come and bring the kind of justice you think right now. God is patient for that day when justice will come, but he's being patient right now because he wants you, dear sinner, to repent and to believe and to find salvation in him alone. Now don't lose sight of this, continues the Apostle Peter. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's just what we've been talking about. The days of Lot, the days of Noah, everything was just trucking along, business as usual, business as normal, then all of a sudden one day rains fell, the door closed, fire fell, judgment came. It's going to come like a thief. We don't know when it is. No thief says, uh, actually Tuesday around probably 3 p.m., Brady, I'm going to bust into the back corner of your house and come. No thief does that. He comes unexpectedly, and he says, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, here's the application. Since, since, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, here's the question, what sort of person am I supposed to be right now in the in-between? What am I supposed to be? How ought I to live? Notice that word ought. Notice how it's there in verse 1. Jesus says, here's how you ought to live. You ought always to pray. So there's just one microscopic example in answer to the question from 2 Peter chapter 3. What kind of people ought you to be? Jesus says, I've got an answer for you. You ought always to pray and you ought not lose heart. This is the kind of people you should be in lives of holiness and pursuing out who we are as a set-apart people who are set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to live a godly life, a life that reflects the God who has saved you. It looks like waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Waiting for and hastening. Waiting for and hastening, waiting for it. How? Always praying, not losing heart. Jesus, I will. This is a check that heaven has written and it will be cashed. It will not find no funds can back this up. I'm coming back, says Jesus. I'm coming back, says Jesus. I am waiting for that day. But how do we hasten that day? Like, how do we hasten that day? We hasten it in the sense of when we say, how long, O Lord? It's the Maranatha longing of the heart that says, Lord Jesus, come, come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm longing for that day. Would you hasten it, Lord? Would you bring it soon? Would you bring it quick? Saints of this, we can rest assured that our unceasing Stout-hearted prayer for God to make right all wrongs in the world, it will be answered. Bank on it. This is heaven's promise to you. Bank on it. Don't blunt the edge of it with the monotonous Mondays, okay? Bank on it. Our unceasing, stout-hearted prayer for God to make all wrongs in the world right will be answered thus we pray without ceasing and continue steadfastly in prayer not losing heart 
my beloved Jesus family, look at verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find this kind of faith on earth? Will he find this kind of faith on earth? Will he find you stout-hearted and unceasing in prayer? Will he find a multitude of well-done, good, and faithful servants among Delta Church? Will he find stout-hearted, faithful people of prayer? I think that's the challenge for you, and that's the challenge for me from this parable, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the work that you accomplished on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for the way that you move in power and might among your people. Your work on the cross, it proves that you are the Savior that we need. And your work in and among us then is actually quite hopeful. Like if my Jesus can defeat the grave, (laughs) he has power to work in me. He has power to shape me. He has power to mold me. If he can defeat Satan, sin, and death, he can grow me. So Lord, maybe in this time of just response, it might just be this for some of us to go, man, like I have lost heart. Help me, Jesus. Man, I, I, I don't always pray as I ought. I've lost heart in this way. Help me, Jesus. And the good news is Jesus hears that kind of prayer and says, I will be very glad to help you, my child. Praise you, Jesus, for being in the business of helping weak and dependent men and women like we find here this morning. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray. Amen.